Welcome to the Traveler's Upgrade Show, where I interview people from around the world to bring you great stories, tips, and motivation. I'm your host, Kareem Shakur, and we have a great show in store. Today, we will be discussing Brianna's motivation to travel, her solo treks in Asia, and steps for being an adventure traveler. You may not know me, but I know you. And I'm aware how strange that sounds. You see me cross paths every Thursday at 2. Going at last to make it on my pounds. My guest today is Brianna Warren. Brianna is a traveling millennial who is continually chasing her next unique experience. Originally finding her passion for travel at the young age of 15, Brianna has lived in the UK, climbed to the base of the world's highest mountain, scuba dived in some of the world's most renowned waters, prayed with Buddhist monks, and danced in over 45 countries, all before turning 25. In between jet-setting to new places and spending time with her family, she works as an executive assistant in Sydney and is currently the co-founder of the next big travel app, MyTracks, which is set to revolutionize and inspire people to move from tourists to travelers. Brianna, I appreciate you taking the time to join me today. Thank you, Kareem. It's lovely to talk to you as well. All right, let's get right into it. Uh, So first, I want to hear a little bit about your story. Uh, Can you tell us where you're from and what you do? So I'm currently based in Sydney, uh, working as an executive assistant, but I guess my full-time passion has and is travel. So I currently work to fund my next trip and see where I'm going and try and get off the beaten path a little bit and explore all of that the world has to offer. All right. That sounds good. That sounds good. So um, what type of travel do you usually do? So you go off the beaten path. Is it more so for adventure? Do you like luxury luxury trips, uh, road trips, cruises, etc.? Yeah, so majority of my travels, I guess, have always been sort of backpacking solo travels. I guess 95% of the trips that I have previously done, I have done alone and kind of just sort of winged it a little bit. Um, went on Skyscanner and found the cheapest flight to wherever it may have been and kind of just went and immersed myself in that culture I found that that was the best sort of travel style for me and also has really opened my eyes and made me fall in love with travel even more I think that when you actually go off that beaten path and really push yourself to the boundaries of something so out of your comfort zone it's really when you start to to find yourself and find things that you really enjoy doing so um, more recently I have actually started traveling with my partner but prior to August last year I I was a solo traveler um, and went through Asia and Europe and a bit of the South Pacific as well doing that. Okay sounds great sounds great so speaking of I guess Skyscanner or just finding flights in general so you're traveling from Australia how is like how are the prices to get um, off the continent? Um, Look, a lot of the ones for, I guess, longer journeys to Europe and that kind of thing require a little bit more saving, but we do actually sometimes have really good sales to Southeast Asia. Um, So places like Vietnam and Thailand, Bali's a really big one for Australia. So it's more just jumping on those sale flights when they come up. I think a lot of people in Australia have to do, Um, but I think moving forward, we're in such a 
more connected world that there's so much more competition as well. So we are lucky that the flights that we can get are often affordable. All right. Great. Great. Okay, so let's talk about um, your your experience as a solo traveler, and I think we can focus about your focus on your trips in Asia or your trip to Asia. Um, yep. So, what practical steps did you take to get started? Um, when I first sort of wanted to look at Asia, I actually was looking to do my my dive master accreditation, um, and I've I heard about this amazing place called Koh Tao and they were like, this is where you've got to go to do your diving. It's beautiful diving, an amazing vibe there, lots of young travellers. And once I started to look into that a bit more, I just opened up this vortex of all these incredible places that I wanted to see and do um, in Southeast Asia. So my first step, I kind of looked at, you know, what was my biggest priorities and what did I want to see first? And I think um, – when I started looking at that, I, I mapped out my trip to have three and a half weeks there. Um, and that included, you know, Phuket, Krabi, Koh Samui. I did the typical Copenhagen as well. And then I sort of went off onto the littler islands such as Koh Tao um, and really just tried to immerse myself in that Thai culture and understand what they did and how they lived and that's one thing that I find really important. So the more I researched into that, um, the more I, I found that it was such an incredible and intricate culture and I just kept looking deeper and deeper to try and find unique experiences that, you know, you, you don't just find doing a typical tour or, or you know, looking at photos on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, so what was the, the biggest um, the biggest challenge with the planning process? I think the amount of time that it takes and, you know, everyone's sort of time poor these days, they do struggle to try and find that time to, to research and plan. And it can be a bit overwhelming as well. There's so many different opinions out there about what a place is like and where you should stay and, you know, if you should go see this thing or mm-hmm. um so I think one of the biggest challenges was just trusting myself mm-hmm. to, that I was making the right decision so when I looked at going to um Copenhagen for example you know there's a lot of negative information out there about the island itself and yes there are um, connotations about that island about you know it's just a party island but when I went there I actually loved that island probably more so than Phuket or Bangkok and places like that purely because mm. you know if you get out of like Hadron's Beach and you go for a motorbike ride you actually see all these villages and beautiful waterfalls and mm. um, you can drive up to beautiful lookouts so I think trusting myself that I was making the right decision for for me and for what I wanted to explore instead of being influenced really heavily by online personalities I think that was probably the biggest challenge I faced um even more so than when I got there and and being alone um I guess anyone who's sort of traveled and done the backpacking scene and if you haven't I strongly encourage you to will see that everyone you meet are so friendly and they're all there for the same reason so mm-hmm. I think as soon as you start traveling you find a community and you've got that support to continue exploring. Okay, great, great. So I've actually been to Copenhagen and 
we've met in Thailand, so I've been to Thailand yeah. as well. <laughs> and I would agree, like Koh Phangan was one of my favorite places when I was there. Um, yeah. It was just so relaxing, so calm, so beautiful. Um, and it was really, really cheap. I appreciated that. I could eat yeah. <laughs> so much food for so little. And it was really great. Your money goes a lot further over there than than what it does, I guess, in in the states and in Australia. Um, it's very shocking when you have to come back home and you're paying twenty twenty dollars for a meal instead of two, and and drinking so much more expensive as well. But it's mm-hmm. all part of the fun as well, being oh, over yeah. there and and just you know being part of part of that local culture of drinking and eating off street food and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, can you take us back to your first day traveling solo on this trip? Um, how was it? What did you do? What was going through your mind at the time? Yeah, definitely. So, it was actually quite daunting, if I'm honest, um, because I was actually embarking on a five and a half week trip, which started in Thailand and then moved into Nepal, where I actually went to do Everest Base Camp. So, it was very daunting. Um, you know, my parents dropped me off at the airport and I was kind of lucky. I actually bumped into a couple of friends randomly at the airport. So it did mm-hmm. ease my nerves in that respect. But I kind of didn't know what to expect. I was getting on this flight and I was like, I'm going to land in this country at 11 p.m. at night and mm-hmm. I'm going to have to figure out where I am and, you know, how do I get to this hostel and are they going to be able to talk English and will I be able to communicate? Um, so I went through and you know, you check in your bags and get on the plane and got there. And um, I got there and it was just bustling. It was like 11.30 at mm-hmm. night and there was just this vibe about um, Phuket. I flew into Phuket mm-hmm. and it was actually quite calming knowing that there was so many people around and I was about to start this five and a half week amazing trip. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was going through the airport and I actually then randomly met these people who were actually traveling down to the same place I was and we all jumped in a cab and Mm -hmm. I think that's a really important lesson for anyone who is contemplating solo travel like you know you need to be open to to meeting people and to accepting help and you know that I think they noticed that I was the solo traveler and they were all like oh come in our cab like we're going there too and obviously you have all these horror stories going through your head sometimes like, oh, what if this goes wrong, blah, blah, blah. But I think you can trust your instinct. And if you're a good judge of character, I'm sure you can know if it's the right or wrong thing to do. Um, So ended up down at the hostel. And I think that after that, once you're in that backpacking environment, Mm-hmm. your nerves do settle a little bit because, you know, you, you've got people at the bar and there's a lot of other solo travellers and everyone's so welcoming to people who are travelling alone and there's people that you meet that have been on the road for six or eight months and there's people like you who would just be getting off their first flight. So once I did that, I um just made sure that I kept on being open to things and, and introducing myself and getting to know people and their stories and and trying to make connections so that, you know, at the end of the day, yes, you are traveling solo, but you're always going to have someone there that you can talk to or do things with or um, c- take your next next step with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so when you flew into Phuket and it was at, it was nighttime and it was hustling and bustling, how would you describe uh, the Phuket nightlife? Did you enjoy it? Like it's very well known around the world. 
Yeah, definitely. And I think um, Thailand in itself is very well known for its nightlife. Um, I was a little bit overwhelmed, Mm -hmm. I think, to start with because obviously, you know, you come off a flight and you're a little bit tired, but it's like, do you take that opportunity just to go out and meet people? Mm -hmm. Um, So I kind of just quickly got dressed and actually went on a pub crawl and Mm -hmm. I found it very full on. Um, Look, you have to expect that people are being partying for days and days and days and if you get there and um you're you're a little bit rusty from your flight but Mm -hmm. I found that it was also very fun and there is parts of Phuket's nightlife and Thailand that is for everyone you know there's quiet bars there Mm -hmm. is nightclubs there are um restaurants that you can sit at so I think Either way, you're going to find something that you like Mm -hmm. traveling and especially traveling solo because they have this big array and I'm not sure if anyone listening has been to the um, Phuket and been to the different bars and clubs and restaurants and that kind of thing. So there is something for everyone, even if you are overwhelmed in a nightclub that is pumping house music and (laughs) got strobes and everything going everywhere. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so when you left Thailand, you went to Nepal, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. So um, that was the second part of my trip. So mm-hmm. once I went to Thailand and I did my diving, I then went and did the complete opposite and decided to climb a mountain. Um, So I flew into Kathmandu and again, that was a very daunting experience. Um, As a solo traveler, I I flew in really early in the morning. I was there, I think 2am and I got off the plane and if anyone has flown into Kathmandu, they'll know that this airport is very dingy. It's kind of like a, a garage that you fly into and there's not much in there and there's a couple of people standing there to stamp your passport so I got off this plane Mm -hmm. coming from quite an established airport in Bangkok and I was like oh gosh like what do I do where do I go and I got outside and it was very overwhelming because people were uh, very forceful and like come in my taxi come in my taxi and Mm. I'd organized a transfer because I realized I got in quite early in the morning and I think that's an important point to note if you're traveling solo just be a little bit prepared if you are going somewhere early that is a little bit underdeveloped just plan ahead and and do those things to mitigate any issues so I was waiting for my driver and and one of the biggest things that scared me was I was like oh I had to put a lot of trust in in what I planned and Mm -hmm. that that it was going to get me to the, the safe place and this wasn't long after the earthquake so Mm. there was still quite a lot of damage um in Kathmandu so we were driving through and and to this day that is probably this the scariest moment that I've had traveling solo um I I was going down all these back streets and there was rubble on the side of the road and big crosses in buildings that were uninhabited because they were unstable from the earthquake and I remember sitting in the cabin I was thinking I don't know if I'm going to get to my hotel because I had no phone charge. I didn't know where I was going. I had no GPS and um, I was in the cab for about 40 minutes trying to get from the airport to the hotel I was staying at. Um, And I think as well one thing that really stuck with me was that 
I had to try and keep a positive outlook um, mm-hmm. when I was in that cab and we'll get into the hotel and, you know, you get there fine and it's natural for all these thoughts to come into your head like, oh, am I going to get there? Where is he taking me? You know, um, you hear all those scary stories. Um, but we got there and and then the next day um, did a bit of exploring of Kathmandu, which my dad is a beautiful city. If anyone needs somewhere a little bit different to go, it is absolutely amazing. Um, and I started the following day, sorry, doing the trek of base camp. So we then went to the domestic airport at Kathmandu, which again was quite an experience. It's mm-hmm. um, We had people weighing our bags by hand, um, like on scales that you stand on to, to weigh yourself. Oh, wow. um, yeah, and we had someone handwriting out our boarding passes and it was very different. So, you know, those little pop-up stands that you have at um, trade shows and exhibitions and those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, they were they were our check-in desks. Oh, so wow. we all went up and, and they hand-wrote our boarding passes and then um, we all were quite aware we were getting on what's well known as one of the the scariest flights of your life because going into Lukla, where you start your trek from, is um, is known as one of the da- most dangerous airports in the world because you actually fly into a mountain. Mm. Um, so we were all sitting there waiting and our flight was delayed and delayed and delayed and I think about four or five hours later we ended up getting on our flight and and made it to Lukla and, and it was quite interesting the world over there seeing pilots in in sandals and leather jackets and you know <laughs> being able to see them and how they're driving the plane and you're like these two two pilots have your life in their hands and mm-hmm. um it was quite a quite a unique experience and and I definitely look back now and I I think what what a crazy person I was to do that um mm-hmm. but I definitely encourage doing something different because you look back and they're the things that actually make you really laugh and and Mm -hmm. admire traveling still so how did you go about setting up um just the trip to nepal or the the hiking of uh the mount everest base camp did you do it by yourself was it through an organization or company yeah so i actually did it through a company um i initially found a trip on one of those um i'm not sure if you guys have them in the states like groupon um do you guys so i found i saw one on there and i was going to book it on there and when i did a bit more research i realized i wouldn't actually get travel insurance doing it through um that company because of the earthquake so Mm -hmm. a lot of companies in australia weren't insuring travelers um unless they did it through an australian company um and i'm sure it's the same in many different places around the world so i ended up going through a travel company through australia um but on the trip i actually met a lot of people who were trekking it solo um mm-hmm. and and they did it they actually just went to Kathmandu and and obviously the Sherpas and that kind of thing are quite accessible over there. So if you go to your hotel and ask them for a Sherpa, they would help you arrange that. Um, And they had exactly the same experience as me. I think because I was doing it solo and I was a little bit less confident back then, which is probably five years ago now, um, I think I just did it with the travel tour for peace of mind. But looking back now, I definitely would go back and do it again solo because. 
at the end of the day, you're all trekking the same path and, mm-hmm. you know, all the Sherpas are working together and know each other and, and a lot of the companies do still use Sherpas from from Nepal anyway. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a lot cheaper to do it that way as well. But, again, if you need that little bit extra peace of mind, I definitely would encourage doing it with a tour company and and just having – a group of people around you, I guess, that are doing it as well. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it's it's all about actually doing the experience more so than how you do it. All right. How how long did it take you to to um, do it from start to finish? And also, did you require a lot of like physical uh, fitness prior to the trip, or how did you prepare physically? Yeah. So it's about a twelve day trek all up. So it's around eight days to get to base camp and then four days back. So that includes your acclimatization days, which um, help you just get used to the lack of oxygen as you go higher and higher. Um, And I guess preparing for it, I didn't really know what to expect. So I was just kind of doing my normal gym routine, going and working out and going for runs and that kind of thing. And I guess the biggest thing for me was mentally preparing myself and it's yeah it's it's such a mind game when you get over there it's every day you wake up and you know you're about to walk for eight hours and it's being able to overcome your mind and and push yourself that little bit further that I think was the hardest challenge and I don't think I was really fully prepared for Mm. um and I think as well like you know going from such a tropical place in Thailand, I was then going to minus 20 degrees, mm. which probably isn't that cold for a lot of people in the States, but it's a bit cold for us in Australia. Mm. Um, going to minus 20 degrees and and trying to, to walk and breathe and realise that there was going to be light at the end of the tunnel. Um, so I think that that was probably something I didn't prepare for. Um, but in saying that, I think it's very hard to mentally prepare yourself for something until you actually do it. Mm-hmm. And how was like just eating and food? So you had to like just that part of the process in terms of was there sleep? Were you sleeping in tents? Was there, yeah. Yeah. So lucky we weren't actually sleeping in tents, but you can do that if people if people wanted to. We were staying in little tea houses and just for your understanding of what that is, it's literally like a thin sheet of wood mm-hmm. um, wall that is probably like oh, not thick at all, probably a f- couple of centimetres thick. Um, mm-hmm. And you're sleeping on a, a I guess, that kind of bed as well that's made from thin wood and Mm -hmm. you literally sleep um with so many layers on I had probably seven layers on and you would still feel the cold and a lot of us had to sleep with our cameras and our batteries all close to us because we'd wake up in the morning and they would be frozen Mm. and like there was one morning that we woke up and we had to get up really early because we were hiking to see sunrise and I remember we left the tea house at like 4 a.m in the morning and we all had water and we were walking for about half an hour and everyone's had frozen and we were like this is going to be the longest morning of our life because we had no water um we survived on Snickers. We absolutely oh, loved wow. Snicker bars, um, <laughs> which were our little sugar hit. But when we stopped off at tea houses, we also had 
um, like a lot of rice and eggs and carby kind of food, um, which was sort of our, our dinners for the, for the 12 days. So we all had like, um, there was no meat up there. So it's all vegetarian, like a lot of dal and lentils, um, and lots and lots of masala tea. Uh, so outside of the hiking, did you guys like do anything else or was it literally you wake up, you start walking and then you go to sleep? Yeah. So um, you can't, it kind of works like you trek one day and then stay one day because you have to acclimatize. So mm. we would, um, we'd trek one day to a, to a t- like little village and then we would stay there a day. And in that day off, we'd then go for another hike to acclimatize so we'd climb probably 500 meters and then come back down and we played a lot of cards I've never played so many (laughs) cards in my life there was a group of six of us we all played cards but in the villages as well like we just kind of walked around and explored um and because I did it in the off season a lot of the villages actually during the peak climbing season which I think is between May and April and May, I think it is. Um, and so a lot of the villages only had a couple of people in them when we were there. Uh-huh. So we were very restricted with kind of what we did, but we kind of explored a lot. Um, a couple of them had bars in them, so we sat and had a few drinks. But every day you sort of did a lot of walking just to keep your body moving and, and actually learn how to breathe with the lack of oxygen um Mm -hmm. we had a couple of doctors on on board who when we got to to our final camp before we went to base camp did our oxygen level in our blood and said that if we were in hospital they would be very very worried about us so Mm. it's it's a very different world up there yeah so how was um just the was there any language barriers at all did everyone speak english do you have a translator so we we all um, everyone who was tr- doing the trek we all spoke spoke English and our Sherpas were um, Nepalese so they knew broken English which was enough to get us by mm-hmm. um, we all kind of could communicate well enough with them but there was definitely sometimes when there was language barriers if something was wrong or mm-hmm. if. We, were, we wanted to know how far did we have to go or um, how much longer did we have to walk and that kind of thing. But I think that no matter where you are mm-hmm. in the world, there's always a way around communication and a lot of hand signals. We were like, what are we doing and where are we going and that kind of thing or what's mm-hmm. that? Um, and I think that it was just making do with what we had. Well, when you're in the middle of the Himalayan mountains, it's um you have to just trust that they're taking you the right way. And mm-hmm. yeah, um, I have one uh, more question regarding just uh safety. So there were doctors with you. How did, were there any like safety precautions? Was it like a class, or did they do like some type of presentation on yeah. what you should do? Yeah. Well, um, before you go, we actually had to get a doctor's sign off that saying that we were fit and healthy and and could actually partake in it um Mm -hmm. and then before we left they obviously told us the equipment that we really needed to have so that included things like we needed to have a certain um degree grade sleeping bag and we had to make sure that we had insulated gloves and and all of our layers and that kind of thing and um 
for our protective wear because it does get very cold up there. Um, and then they also told us then about, you know, what would happen if if there was an emergency or if there was a blizzard and they just said to us, you know, if this happens, we won't be going on, we'll be stopping. Mm-hmm. This is what happens if it happens when we're walking. And they kind of said if we're walking and something happens, um, we have emergency phones and that kind of thing as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were very lucky that we had the two doctors on board um, to kind of mitigate, like, you know, the little little niggly things, like I got a massive blister on my foot and mm-hmm. um, and that kind of thing. But they also then kind of give you the option if you would like to take, um, like, the anti-nausea tablets and that kind mm-hmm. of thing. But one of the girls and up taking them on our trip and actually ended up getting sick from the tablets so you know they just they kind of say to you if you drink lots of water Mm -hmm. you should be fine which is I think a standard thing when you're doing long extended treks Mm -hmm. um and then as another precaution you have to pay or you have to carry 400 US dollars on you throughout the trek in case of an emergency helicopter out. So they do have, I guess, a lot of contingencies in place for your safety, mm-hmm. but I never felt unsafe at all um, when doing when doing the trek. And I think that is, as well comes from being in that that group where there was there was a group of us together and all going through it at the same time and. Mm-hmm. I guess complaining about sore legs and mm-hmm. and being cold and the fire not heating us up um or I guess first world problems <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah I hear you with that I hear you all right so uh to wrap up here if if there was one piece of advice um you could impart on the audience what would it be because this is this is a great like story and experience. yeah like, I really want to go do it now <laughs> Yeah. Well, I definitely encourage you to go into it. If there's one piece of advice, I would just say go. Mm-hmm. Honestly, just book it and work out the rest later. And that's the biggest thing that I think I did and I have never regretted. Um, get on Skyscanner and, well, for you guys in the States, it's look to where's the cheapest flight going or where do you want to explore and just mm-hmm. book it because once you book that flight, there's no going back and you will really push yourself to go outside of your comfort zone and it will be the best thing you ever do there's there's no regretting traveling at all um so that would be my biggest advice all right well thank you for coming on the show uh brianna where can listeners find out more about you and your travels yeah, definitely. So I have um, my Instagram, which is Bree Warren, and I also will be um, posting all of my travels on the app that I have, which is called My Tracks. So if you download that, you can follow me on My Tracks and see what I get up to on my adventures and hopefully build out your own trip and I can inspire you to explore a little bit more of the world as well. All right. Well, thank you. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. You have a great day and lovely chatting to you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please visit my website, thetravelersupgrade.com for show notes and other great resources. Also, be sure to subscribe to the show either on my website or wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you love the show, leave a review. Thanks. Time to the places your mama calls her